Hey everybody, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. Thank you so much for your response last week to the uh, the early bird discount or whatever the heck we're calling it for the MedTech conference. We had a, a great uh, week of registrations. It's uh, really shaping up to be a fantastic agenda. We'll, we'll ha- we will have that on the website, medtechconference.com, up this week. Uh, obviously, it is uh, an early version of the, of the agenda, but we've got the topics laid out. We've got many great confirmed speakers. And uh, thanks to many of you, we'll have uh, many great folks in the room, a real high-caliber group of registration. So it's, it's great. We're going to have a terrific time on May 31st in Minneapolis. Our guest this week on the MedTech Talk podcast is Khalid Ishak. He is the CEO of a company called Pixium Vision. It's a bioelectronic medicine company in France, and it's developing uh, a, a tiny sensor. I was going to say a microscopic, but it's not. But it's a tiny sensor that you actually implant behind the retina or under the retina, however you want to describe it, to uh, help restore the vision in folks with uh, age-related macular degeneration. So uh, bioelectronic medicine is a fantastic space, uh, one that uh, we'll, we'll be following on the podcast, and I'm sure likely will come up at the MedTech conference. So this is a great opportunity to explore one company that's really uh, making that technology work. As I said, uh, the, uh, the, well, I didn't say, the, the, the implant is called Prima, and they actually had their first inhuman implant in France, and they're actually going to have a... Uh, Similar study ongoing in the U.S. in Pittsburgh. So a lot going on in this space. Great story from Pixium. So uh, I was very happy to catch up with uh, Khalid Ashak and to uh, get his story and to get Pixium's story. So I do hope you enjoy this MedTech Talk podcast. Khalid Ashak, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Excited to uh, have an opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a while. Last time we spoke was on the floor of uh, ESCRS, uh, and it was uh, it was a, a lot noisier than, than this. So it's nice to have a chance to finally sit down and uh, and connect with you in a, in a more polite setting. I wanted to get into uh, the news that uh, Pixie Vision has announced last week, but I always like to open up the podcast just uh, trying to understand a little bit more about our, our guests. How did uh, you find your way into uh, into ophthalmology and, and leading a startup like uh, like Pixium or a company like Pixium? Uh, Tom, so my, my personal passion over the last uh, I should say 10, 15 years is uh, is the brain, and uh, I worked previously uh, on deep brain stimulation, neuromodulation space uh, to address uh, solutions for Parkinson's. So bioelectrical medicine was becoming uh, quite a passion for me, and opportunity from uh, contacts in the venture uh, market space came along to look at an opportunity here where a neuromodulation potential to address blindness came up, and I frankly knew very little about ophthalmology as a space, but very quickly understood the bridge from the eye to the brain, because we don't see with our eyes, we perceive and vision in our brain and the connection became even more fascinating for me to then take up uh, the opportunity to uh, lead the team here at Pixie Vision four years ago. So what what uh, state was Pixie in at the time? Was it a privately held company? Was it publicly held at the time? What what entity were you? What kind of entity were you joining? So I joined the company uh, after its formation. It was still in a private round A. Financing was secured uh, with uh, two projects at the time. One was in clinical, 
the previous generation epiretinal device called Iris. And uh, what fascinated me was a new uh, concept project, which the company had managed to license from University of Stanford in California, uh, which to me was just the pushing the frontier of neuroscience, uh, bridging <laughs> photons to neurons from, to, to create vision again. And uh, that was the state of the company at the time. Uh, proof of concept, first generation epiretinal system in clinical and uh, a, a new project which the company was considering uh, and financing uh, at the time when I joined. So let's get it. Let's get into that. I assume we're talking about the Prima Bionic Vision System with that uh, the second product. That is the new generation uh, platform, which uh, over the last four years we have taken from concepts through the preclinical uh, development industrialization and brought it all the way now to first in human phase. Uh, in almost four years uh, in Pixium. Terrific. Well, why don't you tell us a, a little bit about uh, about the device and about your recent news? You last week you had a, a very important announcement, which uh, which drew me back to talk to you. Uh, indeed, I mean we we are really excited about the uh, uh, the capability, and the, it's uh, to be sure this is just the very first step. I often compare uh, the the bionic vision or vision restoration capabilities. Uh, to be like this, uh, the space program where we have now sent the first astronaut up into space and we are trying to learn what are they seeing or observing or feeling uh, before we shoot towards the holy grail of vision restoration, which one day will be uh, reading capability as well as face recognition. But uh, this technology uh, development or promise of this technology was with all the learning in ophthalmology and vision restoration over the last 20, 30 years, that it was possible, but the technologies were not there or very, very challenging, either from a surgical point of view or we just don't know enough in terms of bridging uh, the eye to the brain, uh, photons converting light into electricity, and how will it then be perceived by a person? And here we are talking about very uh, fragile population older people, age-related macular degeneration, uh, for whom there was no solution, and Prima was designed from the beginning with that pathology in mind. And that's why we are really excited that this is the very first time a wireless technology, photovoltaic, miniaturized, uh, allows us to bring, hopefully, a a new hope, gives a new hope to uh, this population who, for dry AMD, dry age-related macular degeneration, and uh, that's a very promising first step uh, for us. Terrific. Tell us a bit about, about Prima and how it works. So uh, Prima is like any typical vision restoration, restoration system, um, uh, working on the basis of stimulating the residual neuronal cells, retinal cells, consists of an implant, um, and there are different approaches to placing implants in the retina, either on the surface of the retina or below. We have, we're going here now with Prima below the retina, exactly at the levels, uh, level of the photoreceptors, which no longer function. And then there are external components, uh, a pair of glasses with a camera and a pocket computer, uh, which then wirelessly connect to the uh, implant uh, to transfer uh, external visual scenes uh, through the implant and then reestablish the connection to the residual neuronal cells to start talking to the optic nerve and then 
transmitting it to the brain. And that's the basic principle here. The difference being that we have no wires with the implant. Uh, that brought the challenge of how are you then going to power it? Because to be able to stimulate anything with electricity, you also need to have a powering uh, capability. But the elegant solution here was, well, how about using a photovoltaic concept to power the device using near-infrared light to create the energy uh, to power the device, which is the reason the per subject will have to wear a pair of glasses, which has a projector, mini digital projector built in to be able to communicate using near-infrared to the microchip, which is like a miniaturized solar panel. Uh, I'm talking about two by two millimeter size microchip, which is only about 30 microns thick. Um, but the beauty is that we can place it underneath the retina and also take advantage of the residual pathway from the retina through the optic nerve to the brain. Um, camera then captures the images, which are processed by the pocket computer, and then using near-infrared light, projects like a retro projector onto this chip, which will then stimulate the subretinal, inner retinal cells, and then pick up the more physiological pathway, hopefully providing a functional, useful perception to the patient. So the, the glasses both deliver the image that, that is being seen and also delivers the, the, the power source to the, to the implant? Exactly. So the idea was if you want to place something underneath the retina in the subretinal space uh, where the rods and cones have degenerated, plus the fact that the likely candidate is going to be uh, or relatively old, uh, hence very fragile state. You want to do the intervention uh, without having cables or wires uh, coming out from underneath the retina. So hence light, near-infrared light, as a powering source became a uh, more elegant solution on one side to speed up, accelerate the intervention, surgical intervention itself, and then uh, use the light both to power the implant as well as then using the light uh, in a smart algorithmics to be able to start stimulating the remaining retina of these people. So, and pardon me for, for re-asking the question, but the, 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 uh, the data of the image is able to be transferred over the infrared light as well? Absolutely. So wow, the, that's amazing. Uh, computer, the pocket computer is processing packets of information and then through the digital mirror, integrated, miniaturized digital mirror integrated in the glasses to transmit the visual information simplified because you have with this microchip currently, uh, to be exact, 378 pixels. So we are communicating and sending information using light pulses to stimulate those 378 uh, electrodes where the beauty, it's a little detail, but very, very important detail, that each one of those pixels has its own return path, a local return path, uh, which, makes, uh, which enables the possibility to provide more precision on which cells and which area you want to stimulate without creating overlap crosstalk between uh, having a return path 
too far away. And it, this is a basic principle of bioelectrical stimulation, where you do current needs to go somewhere, but the, the design of Prima allows us to maintain and activate individually each uh, of those pixels. Please, if you would describe the uh, the implantation process. What is that procedure like? So it's uh, implant procedure. It's uh, a, a very typical um, uh, vitreoretinal surgery procedure um, with a vitrectomy is part of the procedure, which is then required, uh, and the surgeon will, uh, for a two millimeter by two millimeter implant, uh, will first create a, a small sclerotomy, a little bit larger, to accommodate the holder of the implant. Uh, as well as a retinotomy to be able to then almost place or even in potentially in the future inject, uh, depending on the size of the chip. Currently, we're using 2 by 2 millimeter chip. Uh, and uh, in order to do that, uh, he's creating a, uh, a retinotomy outside of the atrophic zone. We are dealing, uh, maybe I didn't, wasn't very clear, we are targeting age-related atrophic macular degeneration, so the retinotomy is created just outside of the atrophic zone in the macula, and then the chip is then pushed into the atrophic zone, because that's where we want to create or restore the bionic vision. Um, once the chip is then placed underneath the retina, uh, the retinotomy uh, is then closed. The bleb which was created is then by closed by removing or um, extracting any fluid from underneath the bleb, closing the sclera and waiting, uh, uh, if needed at this time, to make sure uh, with intraoperative OCT imaging to ensure that the uh, retinotomy is closed, uh, really at the back of the, uh, of the eye, and if needed, uh, silicon oil to make sure that um, the retinotomy will close. Uh, which will then, which is the reason which we have to wait a few weeks uh, to remove the silicon oil once the eye has stabilized, the retinotomy is stabilized, and that's it. The chip is then this two millimeter chip is just sitting uh, underneath the retina in between the retinal layers, and there's no other uh, residual opening, whether in the sclera or in the retinotomy, and that's the surgical procedure, which is between one and a half to two hours at the moment because we have just started the feasibility study. Let us take a quick break from this conversation with Khalid Ashak to uh, remind you that the MedTech Conference is happening on May 31st. I, uh, we don't have any discounts that are expiring anytime soon, so I won't uh, waste your time with that. But I will invite you to go to medtechconference.com, sign up for updates to the agenda so you can stay informed as to what we'll be doing and if you're uh, interested in being uh, part of the story, do reach out to my, uh, my friend and colleague, Maureen Linneman. She manages our sponsors. You can reach her at maureen at healthagy.com. It's the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. Healthagy is the fine organizer of the MedTech Conference and the producer of the MedTech Talk podcast. So reach out to Maureen if you'd like to be part of our program. Now let's get back into this conversation with Kalita Shock. Is it possible or will it be necessary to – Will one does one chip do the job or, or do you see multiple chip, chips being implanted? Uh, maybe not at this, this time but in the future. Uh, very good question, Tom. Uh, this, this very much 
uh, depends uh, also on what the first uh, feasibility studies will show us. Uh, we believe uh, the, the original concept of this whole uh, modular design of these subretinal chips um, gives us the, the, the possibility to implant multiple chips uh, in the future to enlarge the visual field, um, but that will be defined uh, down the road, how to place those chips, how to secure multiple chips in place. Uh, right now we're starting with uh, a single chip to bring the first in human proof of concept that this is indeed feasible, it, it is safe uh, to do that, and we are able to elicit light perception again from uh, these aged population uh, participants in this study. Where was this procedure done? So the, the, there are, in fact, two parallel studies we are pursuing in feasibility. The first one is in Paris, Fondation Rothschild Hospital and uh, Hospital Cancer. In hospital, these are two related uh, hospitals here in Paris where the surgery and the patient uh, re-education will be done. So technically, it's a single-center study in Paris, and we await to start a similar five-patient early feasibility study also in the U.S. at uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center uh, over the next couple of months. And how long will these uh, trials, will these studies go on for? When, when do you anticipate reporting some, some data on its performance? So these are parallel studies, uh, staggered, let's say, a little bit. The European study is a little bit ahead. Um, up to five patients will be implanted here in Paris. Uh, we have already reported in the first one. Uh, additional patients also have been implanted, and they will be following their activations over time. And these Paris patients will be followed for uh, initial interim point will be six months uh, safety measurement. Uh, over a longer period, of course, for safety, these patients will be followed for up to 36 months. Uh, but the six-month data point uh, and assessment will allow us to uh, potentially proceed to the next pivotal phase in Europe for CE marking for a larger multicentric European study uh, to start next year. The U.S. study starting in a couple of months, five patients again um, per protocol will be followed for at least one year before the next pilot phase in the U.S. FDA pathway uh, can be planned. So what is the origin of this technology? And I'm wondering how, how many iterations you went through to come up with the, uh, the infrared system for, for both powering and, and presenting the images. Was that always the plan or, or did, you, uh, did you have a, a lot of other prototypes that, that took different approaches before discovering this one? <laughs> very, very uh, relevant question here, given the history, as I mentioned earlier, that the company um, had... Uh, has the experience with the previous generation also of an epiretinal wired concept uh, treating retinitis pigmentosa patients. And this technology was developed from the beginning to figure out uh, using infrared technology to power the device and avoid or, or uh, eliminate the challenges associated with much larger wired concept and more complicated surgeries. So even the surgical intervention was designed uh, keeping in view the patient population which we wanted to address, which uh, are much older and potentially sometimes even contraindicated to general anesthesia. Um, so the idea was first figure out a, a surgical technique. Can we actually put the chip where we want to put it 
without uh, significant risk to the residual peripheral vision of these uh, AMD patients. As far as powering the device, this frankly was a concept uh, from the beginning, but you know how to prove it, we went through all the iterations more during the animal uh, preclinical testing phase, both in vitro and in vivo, uh, to prove the concept that by shining a light on this chip, you will be able to trigger uh, activity of the neuronal cells, but it was a theory or just proven on the bench. And unfortunately, there is no animal model which would allow us to uh, really confirm. So everything has been designed at this point to first demonstrate safety, that the surgery is feasible, and then through indirect measurements, we were able to say, well, something will arrive in the brain, uh, but obviously no animal is able to tell you what they perceive, so there were always these proxy tests which were being done using near-infrared. The origin of the technology, again, is Professor Daniel Palanker and his team at the University of Stanford. And he's been working on this concept a number of years, uh, patented the technology at Stanford, which Bixium licensed, and, but then all the industrialization and continuous partnership with Professor Palenker and his team, as well as Vision Institute in Paris here, to develop the whole system and the algorithmics and the goggles and uh, all the regulation and comply to the regulations. We went through all that over the last four years. Uh, it's a small company. We cannot do that all our own, hence the global ecosystem. Um, but the invention of the original concept was very much a uh, Stanford project, uh, which Pixium partnered to industrialize. And over this relatively short period, I don't know what your experience of such complex class three in jargon of uh, implants is, to bring from concept to um, first in human. In, uh, in my experience, it was very short, but in ophthalmology innovation, I don't know if what would be your experience to bring such uh, potential technology uh, in this period. Um, it's uh, relatively fast. It certainly sounds it to me. I mean, we're obviously familiar with some other uh, retinal implants that have taken considerably longer to get where we are today. I know this is not one of this is not a retinal implant, but uh, this certainly does seem fast. When we spoke uh, in Copenhagen, we talked about uh, Iris 2, which is your first generation. Uh, or am I looking at it wrong? How, how should we look at your portfolio now of uh, of products? What does it, where is Iris 2 in its development? What does it um, what does it treat, and how does it fit with uh, with Prima? Yeah, so, so indeed, Iris uh, platform uh, with a much longer uh, development path. Um, which came to Pixium, uh, and it's indicated primarily was indicated for uh, resonance pigmentosa. Uh, so uh, that that product platform with its 150 electrodes, with uh, re uh, with uh, explantable and reimplantable design, uh, was uh, targeted purely for resonance pigmentosa. And we presented at the eye in the chip in September uh, results of the uh, at six month point of ten patients. Uh, demonstrating uh, benefits, both visual function and functional vision, patient reported outcomes. Um, but the design uh, of that platform uh, requires now what we have observed in the clinical trial, which was finished 
um, that while it provides benefits, it also requires to have a longer uh, lifespan as well. Uh, even with the reimplantable design, it's something which we continue to look at on how to improve that. In parallel, we of course have the new generation, which was Prima, and the choice for us is always, as a company, quite a strategic choice between two products, two pathologies, two geographies, Europe and North America. And uh, this is kind of a very challenging for a small startup company to uh, to handle. Um, but we are uh, pursuing uh, on how to consider improving the longer lifetime for uh, the iris implant side, the actual epiretinal device, uh, while also looking at the potential for Prima and what would be the timeline for getting Prima also tested for retinitis pigmentosa. So Prima has the scope and the potential to address both pathologies. So in, in terms of our development priorities, we will see uh, whether Prima as the new generation at some point uh, would also supersede and hopefully provide benefits and greater than what we were able to demonstrate with um, the Iris platform. How uh, are you? How well are you capitalized right now? How much capital do you anticipate you'll need to to carry these these projects forward? And and where does that money come from? Sure. So Tixium is uh, listed on the Paris Stock Exchange since 2014, which was the way for us uh, from the uh, private phase when I joined the company to uh, list the company, to raise sufficient capital to execute these two projects uh, in parallel. Um, so right now, starting 2018, we are uh, financed to execute both the French feasibility study as well as the U.S. feasibility study. And uh, subject to those results, uh, taking us to somewhere second quarter of next year, we will then decide of what is required for the pivotal European study at least to finance because that will be running a bit faster than the U.S. pilot phase. Um, so the European study is estimated uh, will cost in the range of $25 million to bring the product to a CMARC stage for dry AMD indication. The U.S. pathway subsequently will be considered once we have the one-year results from the U.S. study uh, and how the FDA um, will be looking and assessing uh, before proceeding to the next phase in the U.S. So we are breaking the financing needs, uh, uh, starting with what will be required for European pivotal study first and then eventually um, staggering behind the U.S. Uh, clinical path requirement. Great. Just finally, you're, uh, you, you've been in bioelectronic medicine for a number of years. Uh, have you, how has the, the whole field developed? We're obviously hearing a great deal more of it, but I wonder how you're feeling that impact day-to-day -day as a CEO of a company. Are you getting more uh, replies to, to messages that you would have left before because people recognize what you're doing? Or are you finding patients being more receptive to to these procedures, how how is the uh, feeling toward this sort of technology and this sort of medicine uh, changing? 
the the world of bioelectric medicine, the more known fields or applications and benefits which has delivered already, we can talk about the cochlear implants to help uh, uh, the, the, the severely deaf people to hear again, which used to be implanted at the beginning in adults and now are being implanted in children so that they grow up almost hearing normally, to deep brain stimulators for uh, Parkinson's disease, uh, or other movement disorders, and even moving towards treating uh, more chronic aging-related diseases like Alzheimer. And a very recent news was about uh, expansion of uh, bioelectrical medicine and tests providing early positive experiences there. So, but at the same time, uh, there is still this science fiction aspect often the general public would ask, is it even feasible? Right. So what we are demonstrating with the advances in enabling technologies like miniaturization, like imaging, uh, understanding the cellular pathways, uh, understanding the brain, uh, that what was once considered impossible is becoming possible. And for patients or pathologies where there was no solution and you are an AMD patient, 80 years old, you have lost your central vision, you are technically blind, you see your ophthalmologist, there's nothing I can do to suddenly be told now, and that's, that's the reason why this is so exciting period we are living in, uh, that, oh, wow, something is at least possible. You know, will it be in there everybody's lifetime? Because we're just at the first step, as I say, we, we have a lot of work ahead of us uh, to, to, to go through, but this is just never forgetting where we come from uh, in, in these advances. Uh, with uh, digital medicine, people talk about the connectivity, uh, miniaturization, uh, wearables, uh, augmented realities. A lot more tools are becoming available. Uh, I think so. Yeah, bioelectrical medicine for me is, you know, about to get into a mainstream arena linked to more digital space. Uh, so that's exciting. And the other part I would really comment on would be people often talk about transhuman related discussions. Are we in a period of transhumanism? Are we also talking about augmenting humans? And my message at this point is very clear that little companies like ours, our priority and our goal is repairing and compensating handicap, which whether it's in brain machine interfaces, uh, using bioelectrical medicine to help chronic diseases which are not treatable by all t- uh, other approaches. All the research, of course, continues on those sides, and hopefully one day we will get there. But today, uh, bioelectric medicine is helping uh, people uh, already to improve their quality of life and independence. So that as message, uh, clearly, I'm hearing uh, at all medical medtech innovation meetings and uh, conversations. So it's uh, really exciting that it's it's just the beginning, uh, but uh, you know, we, I and our team remains very excited. Excellent. Well, th- you should be excited. You've got uh, that's a great bit of news this week, and we we'll look forward to hearing more about the uh, the U.S. study and uh, and tracking your progress. Please join us on the podcast again sometime soon. Thank you so much, Tom, and uh, look forward to that. All right, let's wrap that up right there, Kalita Shock. Of Pixium, thanks so much for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. MedTech Talk podcast listeners, thank you again for your strong response. Last week was a, a terrific week for registrations. We uh, are sure that the uh, the numbers will keep coming. 
and we want you to be part of it. So go to medtechconference.com to register. Because you are a loyal listener to the MedTech Talk podcast, you have to be, if you're still listening to this podcast at the end, please do try the MedTech Talk podcast code. It's just MedTech Talk. Plug that in when you're registering, and you'll save a little bit of money off the registration fee. Finally, as always, if you wouldn't mind giving us a ranking on iTunes, that helps others find the podcast or whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. You can also uh, tell your friends about the podcast, another great way of getting more people to listen. Finally, reach out to me directly. I am on Twitter, at MedTechTom, easy to remember. You can also uh, reach out to us on the, uh, reach out to the podcast directly on Twitter, at MedTechTalk. Finally, feel free to email me directly, tom at healthag.com. That's it, folks. Once again, thanks for joining us. Thanks for uh, to all of you who registered for the MedTech Conference. And tune in next week. We'll have another great tale of innovation.